0: Well, this evening, uh, I'll be preaching from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, and we will begin reading in verse 9 to provide a, a little bit of context for what Peter writes, beginning in verse 11. So 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning with verse 9, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is the word of the Lord. So in verses 9 through 10 of this second chapter of Peter's first letter, he's bringing up a critical contrast in the Christian life. For by faith in Christ, you are God's people. You are his chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and a people for his own possession. And yet, by virtue of this membership in God's kingdom, you are now an outsider to the world. Well, we spend a lot of our life trying to be insiders. We want to feel like we belong at church, within our families, among our friends. And it's good to feel like you're at home. But we don't always feel that way, especially as Christians in the world outside the church. Now, Peter's audience felt, I'm sure, terribly alienated from the world as they experienced a variety of persecutions. And while we may not face much in the way of persecution today, yet I'm sure that at times you also have this experience of feeling alienated within the world. So what can an outsider do? Well, it turns out an outsider can accomplish a lot. In a study a few years ago conducted by the social psychologist Catherine Phillips, groups of students were assigned to solve a uh, fake murder mystery. Now, Some groups incorporated four friends. Some groups incorporated three friends and a stranger. Well, the groups with all friends correctly identified or solved the mystery uh, about half the time, but the groups with an outsider identified the subject three-quarters of the time, and yet these more successful groups also reported that they enjoyed the process a lot less than the people who were with groups of friends. We read here in verses 11 and 12 that a similar sort of thing happens in your life as you conduct your life among those who are outside the church. For Peter says that even as a sojourner and exile in this world, your honorable conduct will lead to God's glory. Peter urges you to do it. It's not a call to be taken lightly. It can be very easy to withdraw from the world around us. It can be easy to ignore our obligation to live publicly to God's glory. But that's not why God called us. For one of our purposes, as we read in verse 9, is that we are here to proclaim God's excellencies. And here in verse 11, and as Peter will continue through uh, the next several paragraphs, Peter begins to tell us how we can do exactly that. And so as we consider how God calls us to glorify himself as outsiders in this world, we'll investigate this call in three aspects. First, our identity. Second, our conduct. And third, the results of our conduct. And so first, taking a look at our identity, Peter once again refers to his readers as sojourners and exiles which is now the second time that Peter has used each of these words in this letter. So we need to constantly have before us that faith in Christ makes us sojourners and exiles with respect to the world. Now, a sojourner is a resident somewhere that they don't have citizenship. Uh, today, perhaps an equivalent you might think of as someone here in the United States on a work visa or a student visa, not citizens may or may not end up living here permanently, but not necessarily temporary either. It's not a a tourist trip. Likewise, an exile is a person, not a citizen of the place where they reside. Now, the English word exile communicates that this person has been forced from their homeland. Well, the Greek word here is neutral on that point. Um, But still, the word exile communicates the meaning well enough. Now, citizenship in the place where you are brings with it certain norms, values, customs. If you weren't born a United States citizen, but you became a naturalized citizen, you take an oath of allegiance to the United States. You renounce allegiance to other countries. You pledge to support the Constitution and so on. The idea is that every citizen of the U.S. should have some shared idea of what it means to be an American. And while American law allows one to possess dual citizenship, the renunciation of other allegiances means, in some sense, a naturalized citizen is exclusively American. So it is with you as God's kingdom. We read in Ephesians 2.19, God has made you no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. As a citizen of God's kingdom, you have different norms, values, mores, and customs than a citizen of the world. Your first allegiance is to Christ, not to any earthly nation or its flag. Your first brothers and sisters are those in the church all across the world, not your fellow countrymen. And it's always been this way for God's people. When Abraham's wife, Sarah, died and he didn't own a piece of land to bury her, he goes to, uh, to, to the local elders to negotiate the purchase of a piece of land. And what does he call himself? A sojourner and exile. In the Greek Old Testament, he uses the exact same words that Peter uses here. Similarly, the writer to the Hebrews writes of the patriarchs that they acknowledge that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. Well, we live in this world, but it is not our homeland. And what this means is that you live a life out of step with the place where you live. And in today's Western society, it's been widely Observe that the most important thing is to express yourself exactly as you see fit. But in the church, we recognize that our chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Even though that means sometimes denying ourselves to follow Christ. Still, there are certainly things we may have in common with those outside the church. And it's a good thing to take an active role in society. But as you do, remember there is no society outside the church where you will be perfectly at home, where you will fit in perfectly. From national citizenship all the way down to a book club or a sewing circle. And one important aspect of citizenship with God is that you are set free from any obligations that take you away from God. We have to remember, evil doesn't only come from outside. For sin continues to dwell in you, and when we consider the conflicts we have with the world, the way that the world tries to steer us toward evil, we have to remember that evil comes from inside ourselves as well. For sin still dwells in us, and Christ sets you free from both. And this is this is where we turn next. For God has made us sojourners and exiles to the world. And he calls us to conduct completely different from the world. And this conduct, Peter expresses first negatively as abstaining from the passions of the flesh. And second, positively, as keeping your conduct honorable in the sight of the Gentiles. Now, the passions of the flesh refers to the desire to do anything wicked It can also refer to desiring good things excessively, beyond the point where they're virtuous. Well, apart from the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, you are full of desires that take you away from God. Now, the world, as we said, teaches us to give in to the passions of the flesh. And we can see this in Peter's day. Sexual libertinism was common Women were treated as defective men. Slaves were treated even worse. Aristotle said that the slave is a living tool, and the tool is a lifeless slave. People were encouraged to live their lives as they wished, and were even permitted to act out their wicked desires toward other people in practices including pederasty, slavery, and the way men treated their wives. And while some of these specific sins may be more or less with us today, things aren't any different. We ourselves have our so-called sexual liberation. We also have the way we talk to and about one another on social media. We have modern marketing that instills covetousness in us, so we desire the goods of the world that we neither need nor want. And sexual and domestic violence continue to run rampant all across the world. And the church herself has sometimes given into the pressure to live according to the passions of the flesh. In the quest for respectability in the eyes of our society, some churches no longer teach that Jesus is the only true way of salvation, no matter how much he himself said so. Others overreact to the society by creating a hyper-violent and hyper-offensive Jesus who wouldn't look out of place in a cage match no matter that Jesus described himself as gentle and lowly. But we don't need to look for these extreme examples either to find people and churches giving into the passions of the flesh. Some people may participate in every church program to keep up the appearance of godliness, but not to honor God from the heart. Jesus inveighed against those who do what? Give lengthy prayers with the desire to be honored by others. And when he saw the wealthy give ostentatious amounts to the temple, instead he commended the widow who gave two pennies out of her poverty. Well, whether we give in to the passions of the flesh, even though we know that they are evil, or we give in to them thinking that they're benign, the effect is the same. The passions of the flesh wage war against your soul. And Peter calls for abstaining from the passions of the flesh because they are at war against you. But Christ died to set you free from these passions. In Christ, you are dead to sin, as Paul writes in Romans 6, and so how can you continue to participate in them? In verse 2 of this chapter, Peter has called us all to long for pure spiritual milk, to feed on everything that builds you up in Christ. Hearing the word preached, partaking of the Lord's Supper, spending time in God's presence in prayer. Everything that builds you up in Christ is there to give you freedom from the passions of the flesh that aim at your destruction. But you're not only called to abstain from the passions of the flesh. We don't just take away some behavior and Leave ourselves void. For Peter also writes that you are to keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Well, think about the accusations that were leveled against Peter's audience. They were accused of following a dangerous superstition. In the case of the Lord's Supper, the popular popular rumor was that they were cannibals. But how does Peter instruct them to respond? with honorable conduct, or to translate this same Greek phrase just a little differently, a beautiful way of life. As Thomas Schreiner writes, Peter did not summon believers to a verbal campaign of self-defense or to the writing of tracts in which they defend their morality. He enjoined believers to pursue virtue and goodness so that their goodness would be apparent to all in society. Well, outside the church, there are still those who appreciate honorable conduct. Most people appreciate somebody who's able to live at peace with outsiders, to be kind and generous to all, and to speak graciously. And this is not at all to say that we should hide the truth or minimize the differences between us and the world around us. There are times to stand up for the truth. But don't you think that hard truths go down a little easier when they come from somebody you know has love in their hearts? It would be very natural to bristle with anger at the world. The world is a really messed up place. and it is, it is the sins of all humanity that make it so. Very easy to bristle with anger and to be enraged. But lashing out in anger is itself giving in to the passions of the flesh. How does David counsel himself with his anger? Be angry and do not sin. And I'll paraphrase from here. Lie on your bed and let God take care of it. Give the things that you're angry about to God and leave vengeance in his hands. Because you are no longer governed by passions that lead to evil. If you have faith in Christ, if you are a child of God, You have been filled with the Holy Spirit, and he is in you to transform you. He gives you strength to resist your rage, and if it is godly in nature, to direct it in the proper way. He enables you to walk in conduct that honors God. He gives you the wisdom to know when and how to use your freedom to stand out, and when and how to use your freedom to fit in. For there are times when it's appropriate to go along with the customs of the world if they don't go against God's law. I have a friend who's a missionary in Northeast Africa. and As you may know, Ramadan was in the month of April. This is a month of holy fasting for Muslims. And my friend fasted right along with them. Well, why would a Christian participate in a Muslim fast? Well, as he wrote... In the eyes of the society he is serving, that's just what a godly person of any kind does. If he didn't fast, the people around him would have looked at him as though he were disrespecting God, even if they knew that he worships the Christian God. They would see him just the same. Similarly, Paul had Timothy circumcised right after the Jerusalem council decided circumcision was unnecessary for Christians. Because Paul had reason to believe that his missionary labors among the Jews would be easier and more fruitful if Timothy were circumcised. But the key for both Paul and for my friend, well, the two keys, are that they did these things out of freedom and without disobeying God. For there's no law against fasting. There's no law against circumcision. But Paul also illustrated an important principle for when some Judaizers demanded that Titus be circumcised, Paul refused. Because to do so would have been giving in to those who denied the gospel by demanding Gentiles become Jewish in order to become Christians. And so... Live at peace with your neighbors. Love them. Show them kindness and patience. Stand up for the truth when need be. That is, Peter says in chapter 3 of this letter, with gentleness and respect. Do not honor God with your conduct ostentatiously, but do it publicly. For God gives you the strength and the wisdom to do all of these things by his Holy Spirit. And so considering that God has made you sojourners and exiles in this world and called you to abstain from the fat passions of the flesh and keep your conduct in this world honorable, we turn now to the purpose of all of this. For it brings glory to God, and it even brings sinners to repentance. But first, we're going to wrestle with an important point that Peter raises. You will be spoken against as evildoers, even as you keep your conduct honorable. Now today, examples abound of the curses heaped upon Christians. We're accused of looking backwards, of opposing progress, hateful towards gay and trans people, accused of being woke if we stand up for minorities and refugees and against authoritarianism. And sadly, there are times when these accusations are justified. The church has sometimes stepped beyond the bounds of Scripture just as the Pharisees did and sometimes received justified criticism from the world for it. Although exploring that deeper would be a subject for a different sermon and a different text. But Peter's point here is that there are plenty of unjust criticisms leveled against Christians simply for our commitment to the truths of God's Word And yet that does nothing at all to change the nature of these good works. Honorable conduct is honorable no matter how the world views it. Look at Jesus, the only one who ever lived perfectly honorably to God. And his obedience to the Father led him to the cross where he paid the price for the sins of all those who trust in him. And it was that very cross that led the world to revile him. The Roman soldiers scourged him so hard that his muscles and even his internal organs would have been exposed to the world. They mocked him by giving him a crown of thorns and a scepter made of a reed. Two criminals crucified with him also mocked him rather than reflect on their own sins. Likewise, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders, people who should have seen the works of God in Jesus, made fun of him as he hung there in agony, Jesus came to this world to do good for the world, and they hated him for it. But then he was glorified for it. Even as all three hung there, one of those robbers seems to have had a change of heart and put his faith in Jesus. When Jesus died, the Roman centurion and the soldiers there called him the Son of God. And God glorified Jesus by raising him from the dead. After his resurrection and ascension to glory, his disciples were empowered in faith by the Holy Spirit rather than scattered in shame. And one day the crucified Lord and King of the world will return and every person, both the wicked and the righteous, will acknowledge his lordship. Your own faithfulness, is a microcosm of Christ's obedience. You will suffer criticism for honorable conduct, but God will be glorified, as it says, on the day of visitation. And this glorification of God has uh, it refers to two distinct but related things. It primarily refers to those who will see your good deeds and desire to follow Christ so that they also may share in your beautiful way of life. They will be among those whose name is written in the book of life when Jesus returns. Throughout the New Testament, when someone is said to glorify God, it's normally saying that they have faith in him for salvation. For example, in Acts chapter 13, 48, it says that when Paul and Barnabas preached the gospel in Pisidian Antioch, it says, "...the Gentiles began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed." And so as you keep your conduct in the world honorable, you can expect that God will bring the fruit of faith and repentance from those around you. But this also refers to another thing. When Christ comes in judgment, all people will see him. He will be revealed in glory. And those who hated God and his ways and his people will be confronted with the fact that God and his ways and his people are good. Now, I don't know whether those who reject God will finally actually understand that he is good or if they will still consider him evil. And I know that either way, they will continue to hate God for it. But God will be vindicated. Paul writes in Romans 1.20 that already they have no excuse for God's eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. God's goodness is already clear for all to see. But when Christ returns, there will be no mistake about it. All people will see the goodness of God on display. And so Peter calls you to consider who you are in Christ, to live as foreigners in the world who value God's ways and not the world's ways. He calls you to renounce the passions of the flesh and keep your conduct honorable so that God's glory may be plain for all to see, and some will be persuaded to follow Christ. Peter, in the coming paragraphs, will give more specific directions on how to do this in a few different life situations. But in the meantime, we can say this. The apostles all over the New Testament show that God wants his church to be well thought of by outsiders. In 1 Corinthians 10.32, Paul says, give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. He tells Timothy that the church's officers must be well thought of by outsiders, and so on. Peter himself will say in chapter 3, verse 15, to be ready to make a defense of the faith with gentleness and respect. (coughs) Excuse me. But in every situation... Across the gamut, from bearing some wrong peaceably or speaking out strongly, God works through your honorable conduct, not because you're good in yourself, but because he works through sinners like you and me. And He gives us wisdom from the Holy Spirit. He works all things together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purposes. And by virtue of Christ's perfect obedience applied to you by faith, You're weak and sinful, but sincere. Efforts are acceptable and pleasing to Him, and He will bring the fruit of salvation out of them. Would you please join me in prayer? (coughs) Excuse me. Father, we thank You for the gift of Your Holy Spirit who works in us so that we may indeed abstain from the passions of the flesh and that we may keep our conduct before you and among the world honorable. And Father, we look forward to the day when Christ will return, when you will be vindicated, when even even we who see, although through a mirror darkly, we will see your glory, and the whole world will be forced to come to grips with the fact that you are holy and that you are righteous and that your way was right all along. Father, we pray in the meantime that you would give us the wisdom to live peaceably among outsiders, that you would give us the wisdom to know when to speak up for faith and when to let our conduct speak for itself. Father, we pray that through this you would bring many people to faith, not only here at Westminster, but all across the Willamette Valley, the Pacific Northwest and the whole world. Father, we pray especially that you would be with our brothers and sisters across the world who are persecuted and even face death for their faith. We pray that you would continue to give them courage and strength to face the trials that they are facing for the testimony of Christ, and that many people would come to be saved seeing their witness. We pray for these things in Christ's name. Amen.